Hello and welcome to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iPropertyRadio um, or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Talent, and I'm delighted to be joined by Vince Harney, Commercial Finance Director and Real Estate Consultant with, and, of course, CEO of Anasorian. So, Vince, you're very welcome. You will, of course, be a very well-known name um, across the real estate sector in Ireland, given that you deliver a huge amount of training for the industry as well. So, hello, and thank you so much for being with us today. Hello, Carol. Delighted to be with you as well. Yeah, um, certainly seeing quite a lot of uh, changes and developments at the moment, you know, even in the pandemic time. So it's quite interesting. Well, well I tell you what, let's, let's start by uh, Anasaurian. You might just start by explaining the type of work that your company does. Yeah, well, it's it's quite a broad brush approach really we we do quite a lot of valuation work so we do a lot of commercial valuations and residential valuations we also do a lot of financial modeling and um, work with an international uh, perspective so we do a lot of work in Ireland the UK Central Europe Middle East and uh, we do a lot of education for real estate as well, which is probably a bit unusual because quite a lot of companies don't do that. But it's one of our big things. And what's the strategy behind that? Well, the strategy is that you're you're actually uh, helping organisations understand some of the key key matrix behind the real estate businesses, uh, and also just to have a, a refresher or education for their own personnel in certain areas whether it's on development appraisals, whether it's on valuations, uh, whether it's on how to do some models. And we we have interest in, say, uh, modelling for private rented sector developments, things like that are very um, of the moment, as it were. Okay, well, actually, let's talk about this, because actually financial modelling isn't something that we've discussed often on the show here, and we certainly Mm -hmm. haven't done it um, in a development perspective. So you might just actually talk to us about some of the work that you're involved in now because obviously COVID has played havoc with um, a lot of the expectations that maybe would have been in place for this for this period in the marketplace. So how is that impacting, um, first of all, on the market, but then secondly, on your financial modelling work? Okay, um, well, on, on the market to start off with, from a microeconomic level, and this is internationally, and it's not just Ireland, it's everywhere. There's, there's some definite themes in the market. The, the first one is the demise of retail as an asset class. I think really investors have shifted away from retail big style. That has had uh, an equal and opposite effect with the rise of uh, the private rented sector, the bill to rent and uh, the residential, um, uh, if you like, earning assets as, a, as a, an asset class. That's been a major thing. And in fact, I suspect that's going to be one of the long-term trends to emerge from the ashes of COVID. Um, Also, Carol, I would see that there's going to be a lot of play made on how we do offices in the future Um, in terms of there is going to be some sort of work-life balance coming out of COVID with a reassessment of whether people actually work in an office or not, or whether they use an office for meetings, for brainstorming, for essential things. So how an uh, an office is going to operate might change significantly. So some of these are key themes in how you would see 
the the wider market in the real estate business going um, in what I would say would be core assets. Okay. Actually, there's a lot there to unpack in what you've said. Yeah, so let's is, sorry. start with, no, no, it, this is great. But um, the demise of retail, you know, it, it, people are getting sick of hearing that COVID-19 has really just accelerated trends that were already in play. And, you know, I was listening to one um, US commentator and, you know, he, he had very little sympathy for the retail sector saying, essentially, you know, you had more than a decade notice about this. Um, mm-hmm. So. Are, are we looking down the barrel at the demise of retail or is it changing? I think it's changing on two levels as well, Carol. I think you're quite right to say that. It, I mean, what I was saying is fairly broad brush, but if you get down to the nitty gritty, maybe what's the demises of the primary retail, things like the big, massive shopping centres and so on and so forth. I think what you might find, though, is that you'll have more local retail. I think we could see the return of the local high street, uh, particularly if you've got a lot more people working from home and, you know, doing less in the big centres, you'll probably find that the local high street is going to be rejuvenated, maybe on particular facets. You know, it might have particular, you know, uh, how do you describe it, bijou stores, et cetera, and that most people will do some of their sundry stuff online. So I think that will definitely continue to happen. So the likes of Amazon and the big players are just going to grow and grow and grow because it becomes a convenience rather than anything else. So I don't don't think retail is completely bombed. I'm just saying it's going to have to, a bit like offices, it's going to have to reinvent itself. And then uh, there's actually a very interesting concept that I've seen at the moment. There's an organization called SOOK, that's S-O-O-K in the UK, then what they're doing is they're using shopfronts as uh, window stores so people can come in, for example, try on clothes, not buy anything, but then can have capacity to go online and stuff. And it gives people quite a, an option where they go to a retailer to try rather than buy and then do their ordering online. So they get the best of both worlds because one of the problems when you're ordering online is it <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I, well, I would say in Ireland, particularly post Brexit, one of the problems is that um, a lot of the retail was coming from the UK and yeah. returns. Um, I actually had to visit the post office, make my first return uh, since um, since Brexit, and it was like doing it was like trying to do a bank transfer in the nineties. <laughs> you know, there was a full yeah. sheet. Yeah. There was actually two sheets of paperwork. Yeah, that, that, that's crazy. So that will definitely put a stop to because I found myself saying, OK, well, if it's coming from the UK, I'm just not buying it then. Um, so then I, I'm deliberately sourcing out EU. Yeah, um, I, th- EU I think that's true. And I think what, what you'll find is that, the uh, well, we've already seen it, haven't we? Amazon are having big distribution centres in Ireland now. So it will get directly sourced from the EU um, straight into Ireland without the palaver. So you're right. They, I think yeah. the traditional one through the UK is probably not going to happen unless, of course, they, they make some modifications to various protocols, etc. Yeah, we've been talking a lot, actually, and it is something we've covered on the show over the last number of years. Like even prior to COVID, um, we spoke about this move to experiential shopping. And, yeah. and even prior to COVID, when one retail store emptied, we weren't seeing it replaced by some magical experiential sort we were seeing yeah. it replaced by a coffee shop yeah. you know they, they, they're all being replaced by coffee shops and the bigger 
the bigger stores. Um, I actually I was just reading about um somewhere in the UK where a Debenham. Um, That's right. And yeah, uh, is it is it Debenham has been turned yeah. into um actually a lecture theatre for the nearby college. So it's yeah. been purchased by the college and it's being used as um it's for nursing and healthcare studies. So actually, even though it, it has been a department store in under mm-hmm. one brand or another for more than a century, it's now been purchased by the local university and is being used as another campus. You know, so um, I, I, and we know in Ireland with uh, so many of the larger banks closing branches um, mm-hmm. I, and through the rural Ireland uh, plan, there was talk about hubs becoming hubs. So we, we're yeah. seeing banks launching yeah. their own hubs government launching their own hubs as well as co-working and innovation hubs in an area so essentially is that what the future of um of commercial space is going to be co-working spaces and coffee shops and well um, hopefully not just coffee shops carol but i mean i, I think you definitely you've you've hit the nail on the head with um i think you'll see the rural locations actually becoming better so you're not going to see the exodus to dublin like you've seen in the past um, I, I think that a lot of the rural locations can reinvent themselves with their own hubs because let, let's be frank, people are operating on the internet. You don't have to be in an office in Dublin. Um, you know, there, there is massive scope now for people to existing buildings and repurpose those buildings, whether it's as offices or, or some other means. And that's happening all the time. That that's, It's nothing unusual. I think a lot of this has happened before. I mean, I know... You you mentioned Debenhams, but there's places like uh, in London that they're already thinking ahead about what to do with Selfridges because they're, they're trying to keep these big stores, but not as retail stores, as something else. Would, um, would so Selfridges, that, surely with that history, that would fall under experiential, uh, surely. Yeah. Almost museum status. You would like to think so, but you just never know. Um, I, I think pe- people are. All, I've heard a few stories about it, you know, from um, some state-of-the-art luxury apartment type things with special, um, what you call leisure facilities, and so in a, a complete experience in that way with some ancillary retail. But there's all sorts of things being bandied around. The, the, I suppose the point we're making at the end of the day is that there's going to be a lot of uh, existing stock that's not being used that will get repurposed for something and i'm hoping that it isn't ninety nine thousand coffee shops but i i think (laughs) i think the pragmatic reality is that you'll see it i mean speaking locally i i um, live in donna bait and uh, i've already seen things like um there's a a business center in malahide in the uh, marina that's brimming to the top of, of, of activity and people wanting to stay there. I think you'll see a lot of those happening in all the towns around Meath, Kildare, Offley, everywhere. You know, you'll, you'll see that, that there'll be a drive to uh, re, reinvent and reinvigorate this, the town centres. Um, and I think it'll just be good for everybody's uh, sanity as well, to be honest with you. Yeah, look, I completely agree with you. And a couple of months ago, we actually did a show speaking to um, co-working, new co-working space providers in more rural areas. So we spoke to somebody down in um, 
naturally, which obviously is a very busy market town. But we also spoke to uh, and visited a co-working space in Crookstown in um, County Kildare, close to yeah. kind of between Castledermot and Nace. Uh, and what they're doing, what they're offering is superb, but it's superb in such a convenient location. You're yeah. close to, you're kind of 10 minutes from Mattai, five minutes from Castledermot, maybe 15 minutes from Nace. Um, but all parking outside the door, lunch facilities, um, yeah. neighbor, all the neighborhood retail facilities that you would need. You know, it's very difficult to make the argument for commuting to the office stack up when you have offerings like this. You know, the same thing we've seen in Gorey. You know, they're, they're popping yeah. up. And I mean, the West Coast, I look, honestly, I, I think the West Coast is going to come out of this the big yeah. winner. And I think it has been priming for this since the launch of the Wild Atlantic Way. You know, the, and yeah. the, the, um, the Western Development Commission have been working so much to to shine a light on rural living and contemporary rural living with good broadband where you can work remotely and where there are good employers if you, you know, yeah. even if you want to have a workplace there. Um, and so to me, it feels like a, it, it's almost like a couple of uh, a couple of opportunities came together. And while obviously you wouldn't have wished for it to happen through something like COVID-19, there was definitely an infrastructure along the West Coast that was very ready to be tapped into. Yeah. And I know six or eight months ago on the show, we were talking to estate agents. We were hearing anecdotally about demand being up and we we're waiting to see would that translate into people renting? Would it translate into people buying houses? And what we're seeing at the moment is that there is not a rental property to be had on the West Coast of Ireland. You've got whole counties with, um, you know, with such reduced rental stock. We know that the, that people are living. So now it's not just anecdotal. We know that people are choosing yeah. this, but we don't know what's for how long? And yeah. So for me, it's interesting to watch the human trends. Your evaluator, how do you even go about factoring in trends when we don't even understand them yet? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a good thing, uh, a good point you're bringing along, Carol. But I, I think you're right. You, with, with a lot of things, when you're valuing, you, you you have got a lot of an eye on the future. We 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 don't. You, you can't really go back and value history. It, it's gone and done and passed. That's not that's not what someone's buying. Someone isn't buying. Well, they might buy a piece of history buying a castle or something. But the, the point I'm making is you're buying the future value. So you, you have to almost sort of like have an appreciation of what the future market and the future potential is going to be. And certainly those areas you mentioned on the West Coast, I mean, you just look at Galway, Connemara, everywhere down there Galway's been simmering for years actually I mean it really has and I think it could be an explosion around there in terms of um, people relocating even can you can you believe that I think that there could be a massive thing and another one that doesn't get sung about quite a lot is Limerick uh, Limerick is probably going to be the sustainable capital of Ireland it's it's so far advanced in the way that it's doing its approach to um sustainability um in, in fact the irish green building council had a, a presentation or there was a presentation made on behalf of the irish green building council showing how they were bringing all the constituent parts of what we've just been talking about how the whole community comes together and um so you, you know things like cycling to your your work the sort of stuff you're using the water the heat the light um that the whole, there's a holistic approach is probably what I'm trying to say to to, yeah. to how 
how it's working. And that, that is becoming driven, at least the government's got a bit between its teeth on the climate change a bit now. That is going to come to the fore with valuations for sure in the future. Um, uh, so if, if you're looking at uh, residential property, they are going to have to be all grade A, um, green certified, very good BER efficient. They're going to have to be probably HBI approved as uh, estates in terms of the um, another thing that's underway by the Irish Green Building Council. And those things are going to underpin the, oh, excuse me, underpin the value as much as location. So do you uh, think? Sorry to cut across you there, but it's just I, I think that's a really interesting point. But legislation, uh, the legislation certainly isn't driving this. If anything, it's probably coming to it quite late. Um, mm -hmm. So we've we've seen over the last number of years, again, even prior to COVID, you know, this rise in CSG, you know, environmental, social, yeah. and governance for real estate, and we know that investors are uh, investors have been driving this. Um, Correct. So essentially, we have developers and operators rising to the demands of investors and, and to meet this criteria. So the legislation, if anything, is almost late. Now, obviously, it's still welcome, but um, mm -hmm. you know, the, it, there are critics to say it doesn't go quite far enough. Um, but so again, back to valuation in terms of those ESG metrics. How big a role is that playing? Because I suppose I'm taking from a residential point of view. I can remember mm -hmm. um, years ago when the Beat Your Surf came in and yeah. there was talk about how they would impact value. And yet I know because I was working with home buyers every day, they didn't care at all. They just wanted to buy a property. They didn't care if it was A1 or, um, um, you know, really yeah. kind of off, off the chart. But uh, that's, com that's completely changed. I think that has changed absolutely. Um, the investors I know and the big, um, the, the huge ones as well, you know, their, their primary goal in their own governance is that it has to be grade A certified, green, sustainable real estate in whatever shape or format is, whether it's residential or commercial, that is the criteria. So they're not cherry picking anymore. They're actually setting the market. So they're... Um, yeah. They're, they're not just accept. They seriously, they are not accepting secondary um, stuff anymore. It's it's just not part of their facet. Um, I read uh, um, I read an interesting stat on LinkedIn, and I don't know if it's true or not. Um, but it said that eighty percent of the buildings that we will be occupying by twenty thirty have already been built. So, whatever standard is there now will actually be reflective of 80%. And uh, that was a global stat um, of our buildings. Um, so again, I, I don't know how accurate that is. But if we take it that it's somewhat accurate, does that mean that we're in for a huge retrofitting project? And if so, how is that factored into valuation? Sorry, Carol. Uh, sorry, I, it, it just froze. The screen froze after a second. No problem. Yeah. The line broke up a bit. No, I'm just wondering about, you know, if that's that, you know, if indeed 80% of the buildings that we're going to occupy by 2030 are in fact built already, you know, obviously there's a huge retrofitting that's going to have to happen. But how do you factor well, that into valuation? Well, you, yeah, I mean, you have to factor in it. There is going to be a cost, okay? that That's going to be the primary thing that you're going to have in there because um you, you're value in some ways valuing what's being built now is quite straightforward uh it 
most of them uh, have to comply with building regulations, which have a very um, grade A type focus, shall we say. So, for example, uh, one of the uh, several of the properties now have heat pump systems in them, a standard, okay, which you wouldn't have heard of five years ago, I'd say. So I, th I think valuing the stuff that's being built now is fairly straightforward. I think you're right. Actually, going back and looking at the stock was built 10 years ago, even at the height of the Celtic Tiger, um, is very difficult. I, I, I think there probably could be some knockdown in terms of the valuation because the amount of work that would be required to bring it up to proper standards, because uh, I hope I'm not being out of order here, but a lot of the stuff that was built at the height was built not to the highest standards. Um, so there's a lot of catch up to be done there. I think where it's more difficult, Carol, is probably on the commercial side where you've got some very old buildings which need to be brought forward. I think their values will intrinsically always be less than the new, newer buildings, essentially because they cannot, you cannot refurbish uh, or bring them up to those standards. You can do it to a certain extent. So I think you might find there's a, a there'll be a slight difference between primary and secondary and inside a primary market, if you like, um, um, for those. I'd imagine, I'd imagine when you discuss with clients value adjustments, you know, whether we're talking about in the context of um, ESG metrics or indeed COVID, you know, uh, ha, ha, I, do we know yet? And, you know, I, I'm struggling for the way to say this because almost the reality seems pretty daunting. Um, how severe are the value adjustments going to be in light of COVID, in light of changing human trends in retail and work from home? And then added to that, the ESG metrics. Um, are, are, is the real estate sector in for a bit of a scary valuation readjustment? I, I think there are a few, definitely, Carol. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think as well, I mean, uh, and I, I go back to some basics on this, people need to take a proper reassessment about what the future is giving. So they really have to sort of understand and plan for the future. And I think we'll be seeing a lot more discounted cash flow valuations done in the marketplace as a general thing, covering not just real estate assets, but all sorts of assets, because they will have to make an honest, honest assessment about where the income and the expenditure is coming from. And that will drive the valuation. It's, it's going to be very hard for them to justify having a 25-year lease on uh, a, a building and being able to say that's what's going to happen because in today's market, that's not what, what is going to happen. So I, I think in a way there has to be a rationalisation down to some basics and some basic trends and second-guessing what needs to be done. And if there's a hit, there's a hit to be taken because that hit could be a short, sharp shock well, then it could build for the future. So there may well be some reassessment of what you need to do with the property in, in, in um, case. So whether you need to get it upgraded to proper certification or whether you need to repurpose. I think one of the big things, Carol, honestly, I see is a lot of repurposing of assets. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the ones that are currently offices might be converted into residential and that might surprise a lot of people. But um, you, you know, ultimately, there has to be some value made from those uh, premises as well. 
Um, yeah, I think the, actually the, the repurposing from office to residential is an interesting one. And we've seen the first few projects uh, brought forward by approved housing bodies in both Dublin and Cork. Um, so we know that this is something that is being tapped into as a potential solution. Um, I suppose I'm the word that's reverberating in my mind now is, you know, when you talk about the, the shock of the adjustment. So even if these these properties are to be repurposed, then they it may be a case that they won't achieve the value for that the investor had them down for. So what you describe as a shock, I'm thinking, is that a very is that a very big shortfall between the funding that, that's currently on that property? Do you know what, Carol? It depends on what view is taken, because if it's just um, a moment in time with the valuation, unless you're looking to sell that, it's not going to have much impact. Right. So you, you might face a hit as it were but it might be smoothed out in the longer term as the valuations start increasing and moving and the market values improve so it's in a way you could weather the storm is what i'm trying to say but if if you're in a position where you have no choice then for sure you are definitely going to be taking a significant hit okay uh, I, John, uh, thank you so much and apologies we've run slightly over time um, but just before we wrap up, I, I think you're in a really interesting position that the work that you do depends on understanding future trends. So yeah. I'm really interested in how you interpret the trends, because, you know, obviously there's commentary out there that suggests after COVID-19, we'll all go back to normal. Um, you know, is, is that is that a hopelessly naive approach? Um, I, I think in a way it is. I mean, we, we will go back to normality but it'll just be structured slightly differently. So the, the trends that we've all lived through, I don't think are going to change. We're, we're not flicking an on-off switch. We're, we're going to keep some of those things. So, for example, the work-life balance for everybody in Ireland is going to improve incredibly. As far as I'm concerned, um, we should see, and it's going to be pushed in loads of different directions, Carol. So, for example, the massive commute into Dublin every day is 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 hopefully not going to happen as much as it has done in the past. And I think you might see, as we've discussed, the marketplace is getting rejuvenated in different directions. So the local marketplace is becoming business hubs, local businesses performing very, very well. Uh, you might see um, Dublin, for example, reinventing itself as a more of a, a leisure and residential place. Obviously, we've got uh, offices, but servicing those offices with local residential properties that are, are there. You know, um, it's not beyond the wit of man to see where this can go if it's guided. And it needs to be guided also by the local and uh, governmental uh, policymakers as well to recognise that. So I think those things are, are positive. They're here to stay. But I, I don't think it's going to be as one of the, I know one of the big developers was saying, oh, everybody's going to move back into the office when we flake the switch. That's not going to happen. I mean, you only have to look at how AIB, for example, have already tried to divest quite a lot of their own portfolio to understand where, what direction they're going in. And they're one of the big players in their approach to office space. It's an interesting one. Um, and it, it, it's an interesting time to be having this conversation because, you know, before we came on air, just, you know, we talked about how do you calculate the cost of something like this when the meter is still running? Um, so this conversation is definitely um, 
open to change over the next uh, six to eight months. So again, as we see the rollout, uh, the vaccine rollout program and how successful that is. Um, thank you so much. That was Ben Tarney, Commercial Finance Director and Real Estate Consultant and, of course, CEO with Anna Thorne. Um, we need to take a quick break now. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. I'm now joined by Dr. Greg Jackson, founder of Autoplant. Greg, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Carol. Um, so Autoplan, uh, we were just having a conversation off air, which um, would really be worthwhile to share. So Autoplan, first of all, you might just tell us what it is and what you do. Sure, of course. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm, I'm the founder and CEO of Autoplan. Um, we're a prop tech company based in Ireland. Uh, we were founded in March 2020, which is a very interesting time to start any company, particularly a technology startup. Um, we're currently funded by Enterprise Ireland and the NDRC and the European Space Agency. Um, what we do is, I like to say our mission is to make architects' lives easier. Um, if you look at the world of architecture, it's got, undergone this incredible digital transformation in the past 20 years. Um, but that's been focused on the design side of architecture. So companies obviously spearheaded by companies like uh, Autodesk. Um, but the administrative and reporting side of architecture is very much a, what I like to say is an analog problem in a digital world. And that's where we've um, uh, kind of created our, our technology and platform around trying to solve that problem. So how did you come to be involved in the digital transformation of the built environment? Do you come from a real estate background? Um, from my family, yes, actually. So my father was a real estate agent while I was growing up for a, a number of gun auctioneering franchises. Um, and he's now actually an architect. He retrained himself. So I feel like it's kind of in my blood. Um, professionally, I've always... I've had a pretty varied career, if you were interested in hearing about it. Um, Please do. Sure. Um, but it's always been related to smart cities or future cities or built environment uh, sensing and, and analysis. Um, I started my career in a company called SolarPrint here in Ireland, uh, developing uh, power sources for sensors to help us sense our cities and environments. Uh, and I worked for Intel Research Labs for a couple of years over in London, working with the Greater London Authority, uh, designing air quality sensors to be deployed in places like Tower Bridge at each end to understand the impact in the environment when the bridge is lifted on, on the local population. Um, and I've done a PhD in computer science in Imperial College in London as well, uh, in very much in smart future cities. And, and my last two years of that were actually working with the Singaporean government um, on their smart cities initiative as well. So um, despite the fact I'm a computer scientist, I would like to think that I have through osmosis learned an awful lot about the challenges and problems in the AC industry um, throughout the last kind of 15 years or so. You know, isn't it amazing? It's a little bit like um, Steve Jobs, his iconic commencement speech at Stanford, where he talked about um, joining the dots, looking backwards and how it's only possible looking backwards. But it's really interesting to see uh, the cross section of real estate and construction uh, bring in the data because as you uh, as you describe on your website, Autoplan is a data company. Um, whereas in real estate, it has taken the industry a while to understand that actually they too are operating data companies. They just don't know it yet. So in terms of the offering for Autoplan, did that stem out of your experiences working in Singapore? Because obviously we know that um, I, I mentioned to you off air. You know, through my own work with smart cities, we know that 
Um, you know, Singapore was not taking the lead back in 2014 and 2015. Mm-hmm. And then by 2017, 18, 19, it had just leapfrogged um, so many other countries and cities. So how has that shaped or fed into the offering that is now Autoplan? No, I think that's a, it's a really good question. And, and as you say, it's, it's, it's a testament to the, the engine that is the Singaporean government when they put their mind to something, they resource it exceptionally well, and they're able to uh, uh, undertake very rapid change, uh, uh, particularly uh, from a digital perspective. Um, I think we were talking off air, I always give the example that um, in Singapore, when you submit a planning application, you also submit the BIM files and they do automated control checking uh, against building controls to see if you're compliant. They're, they're light years ahead. Um, and seeing that system kind of in my mind gives a blueprint of how every system could work. Um, and also when you see the frustrations of my customers are, are architects. So you see the frustrations of architects, you can then map where it could be and then see where they are and then start to progressively, as you say, introduce data into, into solutions for them to streamline their processes and maybe free up some time for them to a, do what they love, do more design or, or go out and get more business, um, which I yeah. think is the important thing. I'm, I'm glad to hear you use the term mapping out because in terms of a process, that's what needs to happen. You know, for the last number of years, um, we know that a number of local authorities, driven by, of course, the new Office of Planning Regulator, has been pushing to digitise elements of the planning process. And one of the things that we found in our own experience is that in trying to do in trying to digitize one element of it, we come up against a barrier that first needs to be uh, digitized. And, and that's a real problem. So in terms of the Singaporean government getting to where they got to, you know, with bin files being um, actually being received as part of a planning application, does that then mean that the entire industry transformed in a really short period of time? And I mean, every working professional. Yeah, well, you need to react to legislation and, and the requirements for submission. And I think that that's really important. And I won't discount the work that's happened in Ireland as well from a government perspective. Um, I think last week, Cork County Council announced that they're digitizing submissions and uh, knowing the work that's done with the, the National Planning Application Database uh, with the Department of Housing is, and, and, and from my perspective, having seen internationally some of the work done, Ireland is doing very good work. I think where commercial interventions come in is that the bodies I previously mentioned need to be all things to all people. They're public, there are services for public good and they're services for that need to align with legislation and, and statutory requirements. And by having to work for everyone, they'll never be tailored specifically to the needs of one use case or one customer. And mm-hmm. uh, we're firm believers in Autoplan of, of design thinking principles and using good, you know, customer-centric design to actually build out products that people need to solve real problems. So very much when when I talk about this stuff, it's it, it's about making a product that specifically works really well for one type of customer, um, as opposed to what from the government perspective needs to be done, which is what they're all, trying to do. Exactly. Okay, and actually, it's a good way to introduce new technology by breaking it down into um, maybe the core elements being designed through design thinking, because that's that's um, an approach that is so well accepted now in the construction industry and it really is considered best practice in terms of any innovation whether it's uh, whether it's technology enabled or not so in terms of autoplan you know as i mentioned you're a data company 
Will you break down exactly what the offering for uh, for architects is? Of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, we have our first products actually live on our site. We have a beta live and it's free to use for anyone who'd like to at autoplan.ie. Um, it's a planning history search tool. So uh, in going out and speaking to our customers, the top pain that every customer said back to me was finding the planning history for the site and local precedence is really difficult, particularly for commercial use cases, because if you want to build a factory in Ireland, you need to search 31 different databases to find potential suitable precedents, and they're not all filterable by factories. Um, so we built a planning history search tool on our site that has the entire uh, 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 planning record for the country and is searchable by location and ret- returns things in the way that you would view properties on Daft or my home Um So it just makes it quicker and easier to use um, and quicker and easier to, to find that data and connect architects to the data they need. Okay, are you tapping into local authorities or a central database? So we start with the NPAD, with the National Planning Application Database, and we've built uh, AI classification tools then to kind of do our more advanced features, such as filtering by type. Um, So we can, uh, on the site now, where it's actually not live yet, but it'll be coming in the coming months, we're able to filter down and just return apartments or just return small uh, estates or... Um, filter down and just return results that have been accepted uh, strategic housing developments for X in X districts for the current development plan. So it's, you're able to really speciate and find just the relevant um, uh, uh, precedents for your site. So I would say we started with what would be called open data, but we've since uh, layered on our own kind of proprietary data sources to, to, to do more. Very good. In terms of, um, you mentioned there, open data in terms of the National Planning uh, Database, how complete are you finding that? Because obviously it's come under quite a bit of criticism that there are still PDFs locked away on regional local authorities. So how complete are you finding that? Yeah, it's it's, it's what I would call a lossy data set. So it's, it's, it isn't complete. And I think that they know that it isn't complete and there's work that needs to be done. Um, I think good computer science can work around that. Um, we, we've, one of our commercial partners is Google and, and they've supplied us with... Uh, um, access to uh, kind of Google's um, uh, Maps APIs, and we use that to backfill in information that isn't there. Um, for some uh, uh, councils, they're missing addresses, so we've we've had to reverse engineer those to add them in. So there there are parts that are missing, and I think if you're rallying together every uh, uh, planning office in Ireland with different requirements and slightly different systems, that's always going to happen. I think that's a natural consequence of aggregating such a massive amount of data. Um, but I, for, from our perspective, we aren't terribly worried about that because good computer science can overcome that challenge and, and complete it. Um, so that's, yeah. that's what we've and, done. And again, I suppose we're talking about historical data, whereas if we can move to a more automated uh, planning application process, then these, these issues will rectify themselves because then we will have a fully digital record. Uh, how close are we to that? You know, I, on your website, you know, you talk about the vision for auto plan is an automated planning application process. How how achievable is that? And in what time frame in Ireland do you think? Yeah, I think there's, if you look at the kind of build 2040 work, um, there's a whole stream for digitizing the planning uh, process. Um, so I think the government are putting in place um, uh, systems and and. Uh, kind of uh, uh, well-funded vehicles to achieve that. 
Um, and we're seeing uh, between kind of Cork and Dublin City Council that they're for residential Dublin City Council, you can you can submit digitally now. So we're starting to see um, uh, the early adopters adopting, which is fantastic. Um, I do think it is a a five, 10 year challenge. Um, and depending on uh, the systems in place in the individual councils, it could take longer or, or shorter. Um, from our perspective, we're more interested in automating the process to get to the submission rather than automate the submission itself. So um, I think the government has a pathway towards actually submitting documents digitally, which is fantastic. From our perspective, we're looking to uh, combine all of our individual data sources and products into uh, what we call Autoplan Project, which is a workflow project management tool for the architect that maybe puts their uh, uh, teams on rails so they understand for a type of project what needs to be done when throughout the pre-planning process and then introduces, uh, uh, you know, potential, you know, what you need to know from the local development plan at the appropriate stage or, if you need to do a flooding analysis, it gives you a preview of that and com combines all our data sources into this workflow management tool, which will kind of free up owners of architecture firms to, again, go out and get new business while their employees are, are working on existing projects. Okay. And do you envisage that your tool, or maybe it does already, do you plug into existing technologies that are being used and existing design tools that are being used? Yeah, so I think there's a definite need for a handover um, at planning submission. So um, we're looking at Reba's, um, I never get this acronym right, the NMS, um, the sourcing uh, system uh, as one potential um, uh, handover point, and then obviously plugging into Revit and other systems for, for BIM then as well. So that's definitely part of, part of the target for the handover because we see ourselves only being a pre-planning company rather than a post-planning company. There's lots of really good innovation in the post-planning space, um, technology-wise. And I could talk all day, but it's maybe not terribly interesting uh, to your audience about the need for schemas and standards in this industry so that we can export data into any platform or, or, or program. But I think that might be a different talk for a different day. Um, well, think, the only thing is, it is important that we talk about that now, it's not necessarily on, on this call, but, you know, I, I think that's an important conversation for the industry to be having, because uh, this is now the time to do it, as opposed to when people are on different systems and trying to get them to align. So actually, we, there does need to be a more standardized approach. And you had mentioned uh, some of the provision under Bill 2040, and actually across a number of different uh, um, verticals, it all comes down to uniformity. Um, so it, it is a really important one, um, but I, I, I'm conscious the position you're in, you know, particularly as you mentioned, you've come through NDRC, um, you're supported by Enterprise Ireland, which tells me I know that you've done a huge amount of customer discovery, um, probably into triple digits. So that yeah. means, yeah, so that means you have a good insight into where the industry is now, because Ireland, it's a small industry, our architecture firms. There aren't that many of them. And in fact, we're, you know, prior to the crash, we were seeing very large firms. They then broke up and, and now we're starting to see these very large firms emerging again. Mm -hmm. So in terms of architecture in Ireland, how tech enabled is it, you know, on, on a global comparison scale? It's a really good question. And one I'm mulling over, as I think. I think we're doing well. I think if you look at any of the larger firms, um, I did some work with Fosters in, in the UK back in five, six years ago. 
they were building internal systems um, to digitize all their processes. And that's slowly filtered out into the industry. So whether it be um, internally in a mid-sized firm, they keep Excel spreadsheets and centralized documentation around planning requirements and, and kind of local development plan requirements and the areas they generally work. Um, these systems have organically been grown over the past number of years. I think the issue with, I talk a lot about vertical siloed data, about loads of different sources of data that don't talk to each other. And I think that organically building up these platforms internally in Irish architecture firms and European architecture firms, it's a broader issue, um, is a natural consequence of architects not being computer scientists. It makes sense. It's not, no one would expect them to be. But I think that having uh, uh, startups starting to come into the space now and create these centralized systems that any architecture, architecture firm could use will accelerate that digitization and, and really allow um, Ireland to be at the forefront of, of what you're speaking about rather than um, rather than kind of being, the, I'd say they're, they're comparable to any other European uh, architecture firm from what I've seen. That feels like a very diplomatic answer, but I won't, I won't press you on it. <laughs> so, no, but, but for me, it's really important. You know, I, I think in Ireland, we can be prone to hyperbole. Sometimes we think we're a little better than we are, but, but it, the reverse is also true. Um, but I think we need to be really honest in terms of our, our tech adoption and where we're at. And, you know, the interesting thing just at the start of our call, when you talked about, you know, maybe motivations um, that that really uh, meant the Singaporean government were able to speed up their process was through legislation. And what we see in Ireland is that um, in, in tech enabling legislation tends to follow rather than lead. You know, so it tends to we tend for adoption to be industry led rather than led by legislation. And I don't think planning in this industry is really going to be any different. Mm. However, and I'm conscious that you said um, Autoplan is a pre-planning company. But having said that, um, the motivation exists for all design, uh, for all design and planning teams if they know there's a digitized planning process, mm. because you don't just digitize your process in order to make to submit an application. So that prompts um that that prompts the transformation of all processes um, before your digital application. So it almost feels like through auto plan that you're preparing for a transformation that we think is going to happen, that we assume is going to happen to the planning process, uh, rather than the, the legislation driving it. Is that a fair representation? I think that's a very fair point. I have a couple of comments on your comment. Um, I think firstly, it's a rising tide scenario. I think that, um, I think particularly in the last 18 to 24 months, the Irish government has put out a lot of um, um, kind of signifiers or, or goalposts that need to be met, um, both by local planning offices and by people who submit to local planning offices, whether they be architects or, or other professionals or individuals. Um, so I think that that's really important. I will always make one comment when we talk about the advances of the Singaporean government is they have the advantage of being very vertically integrated so they can change very quickly from the top down, which is obviously more difficult in 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 a, a maybe a Western uh, country. Um, so it's always worth noting that when we talk about how quickly they're able to change. Yeah, and, that, and that's a very fair point. Yeah. Um, so I think so. But but in general, yeah, I, I keep coming back to um, I would like auto plan to get to the position where we're not following that tide, but raising that tide and, and hoping and, and pushing for others to, to kind of catch up to it rather than 
waiting for the digitization process to happen, as you say, and then responding to it. So um, as long as we keep being part of the conversation and, and, and keep uh, uh, helping inform how these things can change, we'll be, in, we'll be in a good position, I think. You know, that's a really exciting space for a startup to be in where you're not trying to cater to best practice. You're actually involved in creating what will be best practice. It's a really exciting space. It's a big opportunity as well. You know, I, I don't like this uh, U.S. narrative um, of owning a space. But in a small country like Ireland, there is an element of that. Um, so, you know, I, I understand what you're saying about the rising tide. And that's, that's a very Irish approach to innovation as well. You know, um, but th- there's a reason for it. It's, it's what we know works. That's not to say others won't work, but it, it's what we've seen you know, it's what we know will work. Um, before we finish up here today, what's the big picture for Autoplan? Because I appreciate that um, you, you've only established in the last 12, 13 months at probably one of the most extraordinarily difficult times, um, not just in Ireland, but obviously globally. Uh, but I, I'd imagine there are some advantages and some disadvantages to that. Well, what's the big picture vision about six years and five five years time? You know, what do you think would be happening with the company? No, I I, I think I I have uh, uh, we have that very kind of concretely laid out, um, and obviously it's subject to change. But we know where we want the company to be. Um, I think a very quickly comment on the challenges of the last year. The last year was a challenge, but it was also an opportunity. And um, we did speak to, as you say, hundred plus customer discovery. People picked up the phone. They were at home. They were more willing to have a conversation. You didn't have to travel for two hours. Uh, Zoom-based interactions like the one we're having now were normalized. So actually, that was a benefit to our company. Um, so, so in a weird way, uh, it, it kind of worked quite well for us for the stage of company we were at. And they do say the companies that can survive a recession and the companies that survived through the last recession, I always talk about Learn Upon as one of those. Um, and are now incredibly successful. It's a testament to that if they can survive that, they can survive anything. Um, in terms of our five-year plan, we're, we've just opened a seed round, so we're raising 700K now um, to accelerate our growth into the UK and to finalize our, our platform offering rather than our individual product offerings and really wrap it up into a service that can, that can work in both the UK and Ireland. And in five years, I would like us to move east and start to capture market space in Germany and France and the Netherlands and Scandinavian countries, particularly Denmark. And is the pre-planning process for architects pretty similar across those jurisdictions? Parts of it are and parts of it aren't. So for instance, it's much more building control focused in Germany. So a planning history search tool isn't as relevant to them. I call that a, a, a trust tool. So it's a tool we give free to our customers to allow them to get to know us and understand us and and maybe let us build a bit of credibility and, and understanding with our, our marketplace. We need to develop a different tool for the German ecosystem. Uh, but thankfully, not for them, but for us, um, the building control uh, terminologies, rules and, and rule sets are very, dis- they're very diffuse and hard to find and not very easily searchable. So a replacement tool for them could be a Wikipedia for, for uh, building codes and requirements. Um, so we can swap out individual modular elements of our system and our, our sales pipeline to, to work in those ecosystems. Um, something I haven't touched on terribly as well is our work with the European Space Agency. So um, we have a two-year uh, project with the ESA now uh, funded that uh, is, is letting us explore how their environmental data could be used to streamline 
planning services and that's that has global reach so those data sources are obviously they're they're earth observation based they're satellite based so they have the ability to to capture that data worldwide so it allows us when to be you talk about sorry to cut across you there but when you talk about environmental data what what are you referring to like are we talking about air quality very much so air quality is a, is one of the primary uh, uh data sources um uh we have some marine data we have flooding data um uh, understanding of green spaces um the di- different sentinel sources which record different uh um uh, uh environmental indicators so our work with them is they're always looking for more commercial outputs for their data sources that's the reason to exist and the reason they're sensing them and this reason to make them openly available to the public um so it's a part of our work with the uh, east of space solutions ireland and minute and tyndall is to uh, uh, undertake that work. So we're actually starting with more customer discovery now to understand things like the screening process for um, um, environmental impact assessment reports and the air quality impact assessments in the UK and then how we could potentially streamline or even automate part of that service and create a tool for either environmental consultants or architects to check if they need to do one or even uh, downstream potentially um, uh, uh, make the process easier, simpler and quicker and cheaper. Um, I'm speaking in the abstract because it is a two-year project and our work is to actually understand the problem first. So again, while I have your audience, if anyone is interested in the topic I've just discussed or would like to reach out and, and talk about the problems and challenges they have um, in with environmental data in the planning process, please do reach out to Autoplan. We'd love to have a chat with you. That's a really interesting one. Okay, well, certainly we'll we'll push that out through our social media channels as well because again, you know, these are conversations that are just starting to happen there are no experts in this space. Um, so actually, there aren't many places to go looking to start solving problems. So absolutely, uh, if we can send the problems your way, that, that's a good deal for us. Um, again, the company is at such an exciting stage. I look forward to seeing how it progresses. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today. That was Dr. Greg Jackson, founder of Autoplan. And that's it from us this week. Thank you for listening in to Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on sound. We're back at the same time next week from myself, Carol Talbot, and all the team here. Stay tuned.